Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 54. We continue our study in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at this chapter in its entirety. It follows well off of the previous chapter, this idea of the servant. And we have this kind of this, in this chapter, with this idea of victory in that servant. So as we come to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for a self with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we come to it as ones who are even on our best day, we struggle, we are imperfect, we are we are just far from what you call us to be. And so as we come to your word, we pray for your help with it. Because we know in it are the very words of life. These are words about our Redeemer and our Savior. Words we need. These are words that t- tell us how we ought to live. What we ought to believe. And so, Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would change our hearts. That you would make us to be more like you. So that we would live as we ought to live. That we would believe the things that we ought to believe. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So I read through this passage this week. There is a strong theme of this idea of peace. And you pair that with the passage last week. The idea of peace there too. It made me think of the Hebrew term. For peace, which is probably one that you've heard before, it has it's pretty much made its way into very common kind of vernacular, and this is the term shalom. It's a it's a word again you've probably heard in a, a movie, or maybe if you even have a Jewish friend, uh, they will use the word shalom. It's commonly used as a it's used in Jewish ceremony and tradition, of course, but it's also used very informally as a kind of greeting that they greet one another with. When people greet one another with the word shalom, which means peace, it's a lot, it's a very full word. Because many times when we think of peace, particularly in our own language, we think of peace as merely being the absence of conflict, whether it's a physical conflict, you know, like peace between nations, or even some internal conflict that we have going on in ourselves. You know, maybe at the end of a long day, we just want peace and quiet, right? I remember my mom used to say that and I would wonder why she wanted peas. It didn't make any sense to me that she wanted peas when, um, at, at any time because they were bad. But she wanted peace and quiet because I was bad, right? And that represents a need for no internal conflicts, right? To, to turn off the thoughts of the day and just to kind of rest the mind. Well, shalom means much more than that it, it it does mean that but it also has this feeling of wholeness and perfection in well-being for two people to say shalom to one another is to wish health and well-being in all spheres of life so when the bible uses that word to speak of the peace that we have in covenant relationship with god It is not just the idea that we are no longer in conflict with God. It is definitely that. It is definitely that. But it also brings that healing aspect. 
that in Christ we are made whole, we are made new. The Old Testament looked forward to this. Jesus preached it over and over in his ministry and even demonstrated it as he healed people. And the New Testament writers wrote about a peace that, as Paul says, passes all understanding. So in our text today, we'll connect the last few weeks' passages as we looked at the end of 52 and 53, bring it forward into the passage today, this concept of peace. Isaiah kind of takes us down a memory lane of sorts. So we look at the covenants with God's people in the past, how they applied to those who were returning from exile then, and how they apply to us today who are awaiting our heavenly home. So as we consider the text, we'll look at three main ideas, peace to the barren, peace to the shamed, and then peace to the broken. So with that, let's look together at the text, Isaiah 54 in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 54, starting at verse 1. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear, who did not bear, Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will, and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. When the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your your gates of carbuncles, and all the walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, you shall not fear, for from and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who, who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. 
I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. There is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So real quick, look back with me at chapter 53, verse 5. And I want to look at that again because it's going to feature heavenly, heavily as we look at our text today. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The servant, Jesus Christ, took upon himself the punishment that was owed to us, and this act has brought us peace. And this in Hebrew poetry, oftentimes what will happen is they will say one thing, and then they will say another thing that is supposed to match it, kind of like repeating it, but saying it a different way to give it effect. And so notice what is paired with peace. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace... And with his wounds, we are healed. Peace is paired with that healing. That word shalom is found in 53.5. And again, it's not just peace with God in the sense that he is no longer angry with us. Absolutely, it is that. But again, remember, it pleased him to crush his son. Jesus received the full anger of God. For the sins of his people. And through that church. We have healing. Wholeness. Well-being. And for Christians this is great news. But it's also the thing that we struggle with the most in life. Because we oftentimes feel like we are much less than healed. And we feel like we have much less than peace. We feel like we are the people who live in exile. Separated from the promises of God that feel really far off from us. As we move through the text today, what I want us to see is the promises of God anew. See how the exiled people of God were connected to their past in order to understand the hope that they had at that present time and even their hope that they have in the future in Jesus. And this is the hope that we share with them also. That brings me to the first point, the peace to the barren. So back in chapter 51, verse 18, you can, you can turn there and read it if you want to. We saw a picture of Israel, and that picture was Israel without sons. There was a picture of them, you know, they were going to go forth out of Babylon, but they weren't going to have any sons. Giving us this picture of barrenness during that time of exile. We talked about how this could have possibly been the end of their civilization. Yet God speaks to that barrenness in this passage. Look again at verses 1 through 3. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. And then he goes on in verse 2 and 3 and talks about how you're, you need to go ahead and start making a bigger tent. And you need to strengthen that tent because it's not going to be, it's going to be so big that it's going to have all these people in it and it needs to be made bigger. 
You can link this with the previous passage, the work of the servant to deliver his people, to bring them out of barrenness into a time of fruitfulness. The picture here of this barren mother who could not bear children, but now from her is going to come many children. So many children, their tent is going to be so big, they're going to take over nations. It's going to be a big, big family. They're going to take possession of nations, populate cities that were abandoned. Does this story sound familiar to you in the context of the entire Bible? That covenant connection back to Genesis. Here we go again every week, back to Genesis. It's a really good book. When there was a barren woman in Genesis named Sarah, and she was given the same kind of promise, her and her husband Abraham, that their children would be as many as the stars were in the sky. That though they were barren, even into their late age, she was 90, that they were going to have so many children that you couldn't number them, like the sands on the seashore. They were going to be the parents of an entire nation. And that nation was going to inhabit the promised land of God. They were going to conquer those idolatrous Canaanites, and they were also told that through their seed, the entire world, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Barrenness is a very real thing for many couples today. It's hard for people who have children to understand it at all, really. Just consider what it means. Consider that for a moment. When, you, when you're getting married you, you, and you think we want a family, you think of the ways that they're, they're, all this is going to kind of turn out all the hopes and dreams of having children of your own, seeing other people with their happy families and their children, and that not being able to happen. It's a hard thing. I've counseled couples in this situation. There's a tremendous amount of pain and jealousy, feeling like they were dealt this bad hand, finding out or finding it really hard to be around people who have children. Just this real struggle. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible thing. That feeling of these unmet expectations. That this was going to be one way, but it's not that way at all. This is what drove Abraham and Sarah ultimately as they waited for the promises of the Lord, as they waited for those expectations to occur, and they weren't happening immediately. They were getting older and older, and they said, well, we we should just try to have a child then with Hagar, who was Sarah's servant. And that did not bring any satisfaction. In fact, it only brought more pain. Every Christian has this experience, even if you have lots of kids, where we have certain expectations in life. We have certain expectations of the way that we think things are going to be. Even in Christ, even as Christians, we sometimes think that we're owed a better life now as Christians as then as we had as non-believers. Or even we may look at the unbelievers and think they have it so good and look at me. Nothing ever works out the way that I think it's going to. And it causes us to lose doubt or lose faith. It causes us to doubt. In Christ... We have now received healing in this area. Sing, O barren one. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud. How can we do that? 
Because all of our hopes for this life are fulfilled in Him. Not only that, any hope that we could possibly ever imagine has been exceeded beyond our wildest dreams as we have the promise of eternal life with Him. The promise of enlarging our tents isn't just for our family here on earth, but it's for His family, our family here together today, His church. As we see this fulfilled in the regular preaching of the gospel, the following through the Great Commission, because of the work of Christ, the people of God have and will continue to be a blessing to the world. Not because we're good people, but because He is good, because He is faithful to His promise, because of the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a hope that not only redeems our barrenness, but also dispels our shame. That brings us to the next point, the peace to the shamed. Look with me at verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. You will not be, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Most commentators agree that what Isaiah is talking about here is a symbolism that points to two specific difficulties in the life of Israel as a nation. The first one being their time in Egypt when they were still a young nation, the youth, the shame of their youth, and now their exile in Babylon, the reproach of their widowhood. Now, without taking this picture too far... The idea here is that Israel had two significant times of shame due to captivity. They were supposed to be God's people. They were supposed to be God's covenant people, and yet they were enslaved. And many, many years later, they would be conquered and they would be sent into exile. As Todd read from Daniel 3 today, that's a picture of what was going on in exile. They were thrown in a furnace for their faith. It was not a good time. God goes into more detail about this and even compares this exile to being like a bride deserted. Look with me at 7 and 8. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. So this harkens not only to the exile, but to the days of wandering in Moses' life. Israel had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin. That has compounded the shame and their exile with, with their, when they were easily defeated by Babylon. They were forced to live in a pagan land for 70 years. That kind of shame would have been deep. This is a, a generational kind of shame. The kind of shame that a whole nation feels for many, many years. Because they had been speaking of the promised land, right? And the promises of their great God that they were going to go into the promised land and inherit it forever. Yet these promises had never seemingly been delivered. We know, we look at this, we get the, we get a bird's eye view because we know that God ultimately has a plan, right? We have the end of the story here before us today. 
He had a plan for them. And their plan, why, why were they in the wilderness? Why were they in exile? It was for their good. It was for discipline. But for them, they felt like a deserted bride. It's easy to feel this way today, I think, too, for us in Christ, to feel like that we should, we should be one thing. We should have this, this certain way about us. But then we look at the circumstances of our life and we see something decidedly different. When you hear insults from the world, when they say things to you, maybe you're going through a difficult time and they say things to you, well, where is your God in all of this? It makes you feel a bit of shame because deep down you know that the answer is, I don't know. But this text here keeps us grounded in the truth. And look at verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. The God of the whole earth is called our Redeemer. Our husband, for the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. It's a great word here because it helps. It shows us both the discipline of the Lord, but also his great love for us. I mean, I think about when the many times I was disciplined as a child. You felt that separation for a moment, right? When, when your parents disciplined you, you felt this separation. Why is this happening? Why would they do that to me? And But before that could even begin to manifest itself as anything at all, they would scoop you up and tell you how much they loved you at the same time. I mean, I felt this when I'm disciplining my own children. That mix of having to discipline, but also this deep swell of love that is completely overwhelming. I think one of the best places in Scripture to understand this is in Hosea. So turn with me, Hosea chapter 11. I'm going to read the first seven verses here. And I think it pairs really well with what we're looking at here in in 54. And this book that I'm, the the book that Gentle and Lowly that the women are going to do a study on has a chapter on this. It's just, it's really good. Again, strongly recommend it. So look with me, Hosea 11, 1 through 7. It says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And the more they were called, I mean, understand this. This is the Lord calling to his children. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. You you get this like there's a toddler, like they're just teaching them to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them to feed them. See, feel this. He's done so much for them, but yet they're worshiping other gods, and so this is where it goes. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. 
because they have refused to turn to me. So this is that discipline aspect. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. God speaks as though, or he speaks as Israel, as though they're they're this child that he loves, and yet he has to discipline anyway because of what they've done. And you read this when you get to the end of verse 7. Imagine imagine Hosea being done here. And at the end of verse 7 you would think, what hope do they possibly have? What, what hope could you possibly have if the Lord said this of you? Because you're worshiping other gods, I'm not going to help you anymore at all. But then look at verse 8. This is the hope that we all have, brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. This is incredible. This is the Lord running to His children that he cares too deeply, that he cares for deeply after they have hurt him. This is evident in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I'm sure you've heard that. I encourage you to read that in Luke 15, where the son squandered all of his father's inheritance and he comes back and the father welcomes him home with open arms. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we feel this kind of shame. And it could be from something you've done or we've done. It could be from something someone has done to you. It could be something that someone has done. And now because of what they did, people look at you differently. It could be any one of those things where we feel this need to crawl away and get uh, away from the gaze of others. Or even maybe even from the gaze of God himself. And we wonder, where is God in all of this? He tells us, with my everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Remember that the peace that we have in Jesus is one that not only delivers us from sin, but one that makes us whole again. In Jesus, we are healed from our shame. And that brings me to the last point, peace to the broken. Look with me at verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 54. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So we revisited Abraham and Sarah and that covenant. We looked at Moses in the desert and the wilderness. And now we look at the promise that's been made to Noah. Remember in Genesis, Noah and his family were saved. They were put on this ark. They built the ark and they were put on the ark. And the rest of the earth died. But they were able to walk out of the ark unscathed. And when Noah came out of the ark, the Lord made a promise to him that he would no longer destroy the earth with flood. He would not do that again. He's kept that promise. 
So here the Lord says, just like in that time, just like when I made that promise, I promise to you that I will never be angry with you again. This is a promise to the people of God, past, present, and future. How can he possibly say this? I mean, I I can just look at my own life and wonder how is it even possible that he's not angry with me? How is that possible? Again, 53.5, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. The Lord gives us a solemn vow in verse 10. The mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall never depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. The earth is going to go away, but he's not going to stop loving us, and that covenant of peace will never be removed. The word there, that steadfast love, is a very, very strong word in the original language. It's a covenantal kind of love. It's a love that endures through all things. And it's a love that God holds on to himself. That steadfast love. Sometimes you'll see it uh, translated as loving kindness in other translations. And it's a love that he keeps toward his covenant people, even though they don't always reciprocate that love. One day, the mountains are literally going to go away. The hills are going to go away. The awesome day of the Lord is going to happen. We read about this. We studied the book of Revelation. In Revelation 6, what's going to happen? All of this is going to happen. And then what are the lost people in that day going to do? They're actually going to, to ask those mountains to fall upon them rather than face the Lord. But what about for the believers? Well, they're brought into this incredible city of God. We see this picture in verses 11 through 17. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. And he goes on and names all of these stones that I've never heard of before. But I'm sure it's just breathtaking. And if you, you can also see this great picture of this in Revelation 21, as you see all of these different gems and, and things that are just incredibly opulent and wonderful, and this is what the city of the Lord looks like. And notice as you read further through these verses, 14 and following, and in 54, no one is going to hurt us. No one's going to come near us. The Lord is going to be our protector in this city. This is the peace that we long for because we live in a broken world and we are broken people in this world each of us has a story many things along the way have added to that brokenness in our story for for some people it's it's a lot for other people it's not a whole lot but all of us live in a broken world and have some measure of brokenness about us but there is one jesus christ who is making all things new. In Christ, we are made new. Even right now, He is making all things new. Because that's what He does. 
We don't have to wait for it to start. We're not waiting for a time, okay, now Jesus, I'm ready. I'm ready to receive this newness that you have for me. He started and He did that when He saved us. In Christ, as we read here in verse 14, we have the very righteousness of God. In righteousness, you shall be established. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what do we do with our barrenness and our shame and our brokenness? We take it to Him. There's nothing else to do with it. We take it to Him. If you feel barren, unfulfilled in any way, if you feel shame, if you feel broken, the answer is go to Jesus. This present darkness lasts but a little while. But we have a place in Christ that will never go away. Turn to Him today and find peace, find healing for your soul. And if you aren't in Christ, there is no peace apart from Him. In fact, it's the opposite of peace. Ultimately, like those rulers in Revelation 6, at the end of days, in the great day of the Lord, you will call for the mountains to fall upon you rather than face the Lord. But the Bible is clear. Anyone can have the kind of peace that passes all understanding simply by calling upon the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only name under heaven by which anyone can be saved, and so call upon that name today and be saved. No true peace in Jesus Christ. In conclusion, church, we haven't been guaranteed an easy road on this earth at all. Sometimes it may seem like peace is fleeting or a very far off thing, but it's not because the Father is never not looking down upon us with His everlasting love. The Spirit dwells in us, and as we read from Psalm 3 this morning, He is the lifter of our head. The Son is right now at the right hand of the Father, praying for us moment by moment. Rest in Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. Tell the world about the peace that they too can have. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we are ones who readily go to seek out peace anywhere but you, we look for truth, we look for some sort of anchor for our soul in the world, but there is none, there's only more hardship, there's more pain, there's more worry, there is nothing else to satisfy than you, there is nothing more than I can be sure of than what you have done for your covenant people. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to rest in that truth that you have saved us for all time and eternity and you are right now preparing a place for us that you have given us peace. So, Lord, help us to grab hold of it. Help us to understand. Help us to believe the things that you have done for us and help us to share that message with the lost world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.